On this episode, world records, cedar trees and ravens, rugby, and the best way to buy books if you want to benefit authors. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. hosts, Severia Tilden, Jeff Hester, and Jason Fitzpatrick. Welcome everyone to the Almost There Adventure podcast. We have Steph Jagger with us today, author, world record holder, and all-around amazing human. Um, Maybe part owl, maybe part bird, we're not really sure, Um, but we will learn more about that. Anyways, we are very excited to have Steph here. Um, I'm very excited um, we go back years uh, now, and so it's been really exciting to see you on your journey as an author, and I'm so excited to talk about your new book, Everything Left to Remember. Thanks, Saveria. And everybody, I mean, gosh, it's just so nice to be here with this trio of human beings. I'm I'm thrilled and excited to dive into the conversation. And Steph, why don't you do, tell us a little bit more about yourself? Oh, gosh, I feel like as a memoir writer, like everything you ever want to know about me is inside of two books. <laughs> Um, but, but I can say, yeah, um, I can talk about, about those two books. Um, I think most people, if they do know of me, they know of me from my first book, Unbound, which came out in 2017. That was a memoir I wrote about a ski journey that I took, um, traveling around the world following winter. And I ended up, this wasn't the plan, um, but I ended up breaking the world record for the most vertical feet skied in a year and falling in love and setting my whole life on a different path. Um, and then as I was on that path, I, I started a company. I, I went back to graduate school, actually, and got a degree in executive coaching and started a company, uh, mostly working with women who are in multiple different phases of, of expansion and growth and self-development. And partway through that process, um, my mom was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. And so I did what I know best, which is to use a journey a travel, a, a stint on the road to try and understand life in a bit of a, of a different and deeper way. And so the two of us went on a, a road trip through the Rocky Mountains, and that is uh, um, all of those details <laughs> are, are found in the second book, um, which comes out in April, which I'm, I'm really excited about. Yeah. Okay, one second. I got I to gotta go back one second and clarify yeah. something. So yeah. how do you accidentally get the world record for most vertical feet skiing in a year. I mean, you yeah. seriously did not have an intention to do that. It was just so, Yeah, so I had an intention of skiing a particular amount and that amount I calculated um prior to doing the trip based on like what I knew I skied in a, you know, exer- you know, a weekend full of exertion. And then I just multiplied it out. Like if this was my job, I would be skiing, you know, four or five days a week and this many weeks in the year. And okay, I arrived at a number and that number was 4 million vertical feet. So that was kind of the original carrot on the end of the stick. And as I was skiing, people kept asking, is this a record? And I was like, I have no idea. And, and they asked enough times that I, I eventually looked it up. And there was in fact a Guinness record for just over 4.1 million. And I thought, well, if I can make it to four, I can make it to 4.1 and then some. Um, that's like four or five days extra or maybe even less. So so that's what I did. So now was this long runs 
Or did you just like do the bunny slope over and over and over again and like cut in line, you know, push kids out of the way, <laughs> jump in line to get up to the, you know, it was so you could like, just kind of really quickly, you know, reset. Jason, it was everything. It was, it was long runs. It was, you know, when, when the conditions were not the way I wanted them or when certain lifts weren't open, it was, I'm going to ski 500 laps on this T-bar in Argentina to see if I can get, you know, 10,000 vertical feet long today. So it was, uh, it was a fair bit. Although I will put on the record that I did crash into a kid once, but I never um, pushed a child. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure it was the kid's fault. I'm sure yeah, it was the kid's right. fault, you know. I, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and what was skiing in South America like? Like, you obviously uh, know it's there and you hear about it. Is it amazing? It was, um, it was really great. It was, it was amazing skiing. Um, the, the lifts, a lot of the lifts in South America are borrowed. They're like secondhand lifts from different resorts in Europe and different resorts here. So there's not very many places that have kind of like high speed capability. Um, but if you are down to like eat lentil soup and eat steak and drink wine and ski some laps and enjoy some culture in a not terribly expensive ski setting, Gosh, that's, I, I don't know, that's a trip of a lifetime. Now, for a lot of people, I don't know where everybody's located from, but for a lot of people I know in Canada and also in the Pacific, where I grew up, and in the Pacific Northwest, that would mean having to give up some of summer. And that's a pretty tough sell for a lot of people. Yeah, on the other hand, if you love skiing, you know, like you can be doing that when other people are, you know, baking in the heat and sucking in wildfire smoke. You know, exactly. <laughs> which is what we're doing now. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So South America, I mean, that was, that was, those were some of my favorite. Oh gosh. And they've got some really big, they've got some really big resorts there and, um, and oftentimes really great snow and, uh, you know, you're in such huge mountains. I mean, you know, there's one place that's really famous, Portillo. It's right underneath Aconcagua. I mean, this is some of the biggest mountains, you know, uh, in the world. So it's, it's really, really stunning. Um, I loved my time in, in, um, in Argentina and it was great. I don't know guys, maybe you should read Unbound. Yeah, I know. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think saying. you're right. Yeah. I know. I know. I fully no intended way, on it. There's lots of exciting yeah. stuff in that book. It's not yeah. just skiing. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Nod, nod. I, I did um, fully intend on reading it. It's just if all of my clients didn't decide to all hire me at once for the last three weeks, I, you know, but but I'll have some time and, and I definitely, uh, definitely will get to it. And I'm going to buy the new one. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Steph, I mean, so they're obviously both two very personal books. Uh, um, and it was interesting because you and I were on a hike, I think, sometime early in your writing of the second book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I remember you saying it's a completely different voice because I'm a completely different person. And it's true. And I really love, I love the voice in this book. Um and so I'm just curious, like as a writer, what was that experience like sort of having written one book and, you know, about a very specific journey in a time in your life and now transitioning into this as a writer? Good, bad, yeah, scary? Yeah, it's, you know, all of those things, I think. You know, when I wrote Unbound, um, that trip, the actual writing process, it was like, you know, I didn't do an MFA. I hadn't really done much writing other than like a blog newsletter to my five friends and family while I was traveling. So. Um, that whole process was what I would call like my maiden voyage in the world, both the trip itself, the experience of like, what is my power in the world? Uh, how, what is my individuality? How am I going to find that? Um, and then the writing about it, which was very new to me. 
Um, when I went into the second book, which is a much kind of more, uh, there's, there's a much larger kind of emotional terrain in that book. And of course, my mother in it as well. And, and that, to me, felt like moving from the quintessential, you know, journey of maiden to mother. And it, you know, it felt like, it felt like the same voice, but just allowing myself to like mature and evolve as a human being. Like I, the first book, it was, you know, it's fun, it's cheeky, it's fast paced. You know, there's some moments of profundity here and there as I move through expansion and, and realizations and self-growth as a human being. But, you know, the second voice just felt like a, an evolution of self. And what an absolute honor, really, to be able to look back at both of these books now and see that so clearly to, to say, oh, here I am, a human being that's allowing myself to evolve and change and mature and deepen and wisen in, in particular areas. And I, I only hope that will continue. Um, and so from a process standpoint, it was just following the natural kind of ebb and flow of my own evolution, I think. And did you give an accent to, to the new voice? Did you have, was it like a British accent in your head, like as you were writing it? Sorry, you're talking about very no. emotional, whatever stuff. And no, I'm, I'm being no, a smart or, was it a Russian, or was it a Russian was it, accent? Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. No, you know, what was, you know, it is, it is funny, um, Jason, that you mentioned that because this, this does have my mom in it and there's so much of my mom in the dialogue and I, I did have, so if, you know, when I read it back to myself, it's like me doing an imitation of my mom. <laughs> and so there is to me kind of a comical voice inside of it. So touche, yes, there, okay, I was okay. doing a little bit of that, but perhaps yeah. not for myself. <laughs> See, and I, I was just being a smart ass and yet, right? and yet, and yet there was some, some truth to the smart assness. That's right. <laughs> and when you do the audiobook, you can, you know, you can actually do the impression, you know, do the oh impersonation out loud. You know what's so interesting about the audiobook? So for Unbound, I, I, somebody else recorded the audiobook. And so when it came time to do it for the second book, um, I really wanted to, wanted to do it. And, and, and then when it came down to it, I thought, I think that might be just ego and me wanting to control this whole thing. And probably a professional should do this. Like, I don't know how to record. I don't know, I just really thought. And so we actually had the same person. So it will, it will technically be the same voice reading both books, which I'm, I'm really excited about. And because it's somebody else reading my story, like I can't, I can't listen to it. It's such yeah. a bizarre experience. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's like a different voice inside your brain, right? Like, That's right. And it just like doesn't compute. I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the new book is, is really moving. And mm -hmm. I know that I was kind of fighting back the tears at points mm. as I read it. And mm. I would imagine if you're reading the book for an audiobook, it might bring up some of those emotions again. And, you know, that would be tough. I, I can, I could just see myself, you know, trying to read something that was, you know, pulling at my heartstrings and, and just getting kind of choked up as I'm trying to read and having to redo that whole thing all over again. I, Jeff, I can't tell you, like, I've been asked to read different segments for podcasts. I've been asked, I will have to do this, you know, when I go on book tour and I'm like, get ready because I'm just going to be crying. <laughs> Depends on the segment or, or chapter or section that I'm reading, but t completely, you know, even now, even, you know, when you go through the writing process, you're, you're looking at certain sections and refining and editing certain sections over and over and over again. And still to this day, when I sit with some, even though I've read them, 
200 times, it still feels like there's emotion kind of right at the surface. So you hit the nail on the head with that one. Yeah. So when you started off on this adventure, I mean, I know you wanted to capture this moment in time. And as a writer, there's, I feel like, of course, there's some sort of writing that was going to come out of it, right? There was some Mm -hmm. sort of pen to paper was going to come out of this journey. But was the intent to write a book out of it? Was the intent to make this another memoir? Like, at what point did you want, did you decide to tell the story and use the journey to tell the story of mm-hmm, your mm-hmm. mom and you? I, I always, I always knew I would write about it. I did not know it was going to be a book. And so I thought that that writing was going to be a personal processing. Um, that's part of who I am. I, I go on adventures, large and small, and, and I usually end up putting pen to paper or fingers on a keyboard or, you know, there's, there's some kind of processing that happens and digestion that happens afterwards. When I was flying, my, my, we finished the trip um, in Montana and we were flying back to Vancouver, Canada. And, and as we were flying, I found myself like furiously writing in the notes app on my iPhone about some of the stuff that had just happened. And, and almost, I mean, the, I was only writing for about five minutes before it, it, it hit. Oh my gosh, I think this is, this is going to be bigger than just me processing on my own. So it, it happened very quickly. I didn't go into the trip with that intention, but it happened very fast, like right on the plane home. I was just going to say, maybe you could uh, step back just a, a, a little bit and tell us, give our, our listeners a chance to know, like, what is the book yeah. about in broad yeah. strokes? We don't, without giving it too much away or. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for that, that question, Jeff. So the, the book is about um, a journey that my mother and I took. So she, as I said earlier, she was diagnosed with um, early onset Alzheimer's in 2015. And about 11 months later, I, I kind of was struck with an idea to, to take her on a, on a road trip and do some camping and hiking and some adventures in, in the Rocky Mountains. Most in in Montana and Wyoming and so you know we did that so that that journey itself the the two weeks on the road serves as a bit of a backbone for for the actual book I I think what I what I found when I was with her uh, on that journey was that there was just something much larger unfolding within the landscape of of loss of memory of of what it means to be mother-daughter and have those roles shifting and evolving um, and really wanted to kind of dive into or felt called to dive into a much deeper examination of, you know, who am I both with her and without her? Um, and, and, and what is the role of mother really in my own life um, as, I, as I lose her, as she begins to forget me and, and we continue on the journey? So I felt like, you know, the trip itself, as I said, was, was the backbone. And, and that certainly guides us through the book, uh, or guides the reader through the book. But the ultimate exploration is really uh, who are we uh, with and without our mothers? Yeah. And there's, you know, there's a specific uh, mother-daughter component. There's, all, there's obviously a specific component to memory loss, dementia, Alzheimer's. Um, but, but as you said, Jeff, like, you know, you found that there were points that, that you were, you know, holding back tears or, or perhaps not holding them back. Um, and I think there's something inside of this book that's, that's expands beyond just the mother daughter experience to really, you know, what is it that our mothers, um, have, have sacrificed both of themselves and for us. And, and what does that mean about how we want to walk forward in life as we, you know, as we age, as we watch them age. Um, and so I, I think it, it's really beautiful for me to hear um, hear people 
that have read it that are, you know, our sons as well and what they're taking from it. Um, it's really, that's, that's really kind of blows my mind in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, I definitely think, um, I mean, there's so much about the mother-daughter relationship in it, um, but I think there's also sort of a subtlety that transcends just the parent, like, right, the role of the parent in our lives. And to your point, like, and with Alzheimer's, just like that sort of as people are aging and getting older and just sort of that loss and just that journey was really, really special yeah, and I mean, something I, that was very relatable. I think there's something, you know, pretty universal that we're that we're all experiencing in, in the collapse of of the things we thought would take care of us. You know, whether that's jobs, whether that's certain systems in our society, whether that's mother nature, whether that's our own parents, whether that's a spouse, et cetera, you know, we're seeing a lot of these different things begin to crumble and collapse. And I think specifically in this book, you know, the the as I observed my my mother move through that process, you know, the, the next place for me to go or the the kind of easiest metaphorical link for me was was that of the landscape of nature and, and kind of watching a simultaneous collapse there and thinking, okay, what's my responsibility as a as a daughter of 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 the metaphorical landscape of mother and the literal landscape of mother as we uh, as we move forward. So I think that's also something that probably you know transcends just the mother the specific of the mother daughter relationship into an accessibility for a lot of people to kind of think right I. The thing I thought that was going to take care of me is not or has not or is falling away. How am I going to be okay? And, and I think that's tucked in there as well. I think that feeling, that's what I hope at least, is that people feel like even if that does crumble, even if things do crumble, like we're going to be okay. You talk about several times about, you know, mother nature speaking to you. And, you know, is that sort of the, you know, part of the experience of when you're in these beautiful places like, Grand Teton or Yellowstone or whatever, you know, the way that you can sit very still and very quiet and, and yet you're hearing and you're receiving so much. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Or what is, what is the mother nature? How does mother nature speak to you? Yeah, I think, I think for me, the, the biggest, um, you know, kind of correlation is and this is a lot of the book is that you know my mother was a woman of very few words she was demonstratively warm like you could feel her love her her presence her warmth the consistency the way that she showed up but she probably wasn't going to say a lot about it she wasn't going to use words to kind of tell you or guide you through life or explain things in that way and so for me you know that that's a direct correlation to to nature i mean you know cedar tree isn't going to go okay so here's the drill this is we're going to tell you how the woodpeckers work and we're going to tell you how you know how this hiking trail is going to go and you're going to have to tie up your shoes a little tighter like that's just not going to happen but there is an exchange of 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 energy and information on some level that that i think because of my experience with my mom that just felt like a direct correlation of like oh I understand this language. Like I understand how to sit with something or someone and pick up on their energy and what's required and, and uh, encouragement or discouragement or you know, various different things. So for me, that was a direct correlation. And, and, and I, I think that's just, that's an interesting question. It, it feels to me like that's, all, that's just woven into you know, a lot of the work that I do now. And, and specifically as a writer, what, if words aren't there, what can I translate? And I think, you know, my mother, as well as nature, has been a big teacher in that. So I shared that story, or I shared that a note from the, the book or, or that takeaway 
about how your mother was not, didn't say, I love you verbally, but she said it through her actions. And my wife, I was sharing that with my wife and she goes, that was my mom. You know, that was my mom, totally. And she mm-hmm. goes, I never thought of it that way. And so she's like, I, I, I think I might want to read this book. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think there's something for for me in there, you know, in that yeah. message. Yeah, you know, and there's, there, there, I think there's a lot. There's a, there's a, what are the ways that people around us show their love in their own unique languages. I mean, I can't remember the name of the book, the five love languages or whatever, you know, are they doing acts of praise or words of praise or acts of service or, you know, various different things. Certainly, um, I think a lot of us have have parents who grew up uh, without the facility to really explain what was going on in an emotional landscape. and, and so I think it's important for us to look at that and go, oh, there were ways that they showed us that, that they loved us. I mean, I can think of, you know, I've used examples with my mom, like the way that she showed up consistently to soccer practices, the way that she was always there with the birthday cake. You know, there was various different ways of, and I, again, I always use the word, she was really demonstrative with her love. And, and I think that there's kind of a reckoning of how important is it for us that the children of those people to kind of have our own emotional reckoning with what maybe what we needed and didn't get even though we maybe did get quite a bit um and and what we can do for future generations of you know how do we explain the tangible world and how do we explain the emotional world you know are we willing to commit to the exploration and the translation of both of those places I think one of the things that I really liked on that note of your journey is that recognition that um, there's a lot of recognition of just like you expected something to be a certain way, but you realize that the love was there, you know, the love was there, all those things were there. Um, And just that sort of recognition of, okay, like maybe I wasn't missing anything. Maybe it was always there. That sort of helped me be who I am. Um, Yeah, in fact, you know, I don't I don't like to think of like, oh, maybe it was withheld just so that I could learn. Um, I think it was really distinctly who she was in the world. But I think I think that's that's exactly the way I ended up kind of seeing it was was not as a withholding or not that I actually missed out on anything. But 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 because of that, I was able to kind of go into the world and develop what, what I think of are some of my greatest gifts. I mean, it's it's not I mean, I write about this really specifically in the book, you know, the, the child that is thirsty for words is going to go out and create them. I mean, and that's, that's, that's what's happened inside of our relationship. And I wonder if my mother was a person who had like filled every room with words, you know, a, a, you know, word after word after word, if I would have ever had the space to really understand the importance of words and how I want to use them in the world and, and for me to be able to fill the room with words. Um, and so, again, I, I don't think her withholding was, was kind of some inner knowing of like, this is a child that I must hold my words so she can fill the room with hers. But, but I do think that there was, you know, that that was how I think I developed what, what I think of as one of my, my gifts. One of my favorite quotes from the book, it's, imagine what's possible if we let go of ourselves, the masks we've worn, the roles we've played, the performative nature of who we've become. Imagine if we were able to glimpse some un- unrecognizable future and run for it. No expectations, no decade-long narratives, ours or our mother's or anyone else's holding us back. And I just loved that sort of, again, like what, you know, we have, we grow up in these worlds where like there's expectations and all the things, like what if we were to let those all go? That was something that really... Well, yeah, and, and, and your mom said something. It never occurred to me, and you mentioned that a couple times in the book, you know, it never occurred to me. 
And it talks about that expectation that other, you know, other people place on us, whether it's family or work or whatever. And uh, that seemed to be a recurring theme. You know, it's like, you know, freeing ourselves from the expectations and allowing ourselves to be fully who we are, you know. Yeah, there's there's two two parts of that that I think are really important. One of which ties back to nature, right? Like this is this is I write a lot about, and there's there's lots of people who have talked about this so brilliantly um, in inside of this kind of the space of nature writing. But you know, a cedar tree can't be anything but a cedar tree. A raven can't be anything but a raven. You know, but but here we are as humans, and and, and we can put on a lot of masks. I mean. I shouldn't use ravens as an example because they can throw their their calls and imitate a lot of other things. But <laughs> um, but but we can really you know put on masks and and fill roles and pretend to be people that we're not and and not even know who we are. You know, and so I, th- I think that's one of the things that I found such solace in that you know that uh, you know a path that we're walking down it can't be anything but the path that it is. And so there's kind of an encouragement. Um, unspoken encouragement, of course, but for you to show up as what you are and not to have to put on any any roles or masks in that situation. And so I think, you know, th- that was one of the tie-ins with nature. I-, I think with, you know, Severia, that section, that's, that section I remember, I remember writing and I remember kind of the ahas that came to me when I was working on that, on that particular part, really specifically as it relates to the experience with with Alzheimer's and dementia and various um, forms of degenerative disease, you know, when when a parent specifically, but anyone who's really in a close relationship begins to forget who you are, you know, a lot of a lot of people describe that as as the most excruciating moment, right? And it and it is awful. And it's very confronting on a multiple multiple different levels. Of, of relationship, of connection, of identity, you know, I could go on and on. But there was, there was something inside of that moment that happened for me that was kind of like, if she forgets who I am, I can forget who I am. And specifically in the context of if she is forgetting who she, who I am and who she expects me to be and who she would like me to be and who she always thought my potential was and who, you know, all of those different things that happen inside of um, parent-child relationships or, you know, spousal relationships or sibling relationships or, you know, multiple different things, then, then I can forget. And, and if I have the opportunity to forget who I am or just even place it to the side, place myself to the side for, you know, a day, a week, a month, who will I find? And, and how, if I find something there, is that the true me? And how do I begin to shape my life around that person or that, or that energy? And, and that was a profoundly powerful realization for me um, that I did not, you know, I, I didn't, that came maybe a year after the, after the trip with her, um, it, when I was in the writing process, really, really kind of digging into you know, what is a person's identity when the primary person who's been reflecting it back or one of the primary people who's been reflecting it back, you know, can no longer do that. Like, so the mirror drops and so what? There's a void, you know, and, and if you go into the world of, you know, mythopoetics and shaman, and this goes to Severia's question of am I half a bird or am I half an owl, <laughs> you know, then the, the, the void is really the place of pure potential. And it's terrifying and it's some of the most excruciating, you know, moments, but it's, there's a lot that can be created from that place. And it, I, I, it's, a, it, I, I don't want to say I enjoy going there, but I've pulled a lot from that place. 
So just to, if you're half a bird yeah. and half an owl, aren't you still all a bird though? That's true. That's that just, is you got me on that one. Semantics. I'm just sorry. Yeah. I was just I heard that. Yeah. I'm like, well, wait a minute, because yeah. because owls maybe, are birds. Maybe yeah. I'd be a maybe I'd be a, yeah. a flying bowel. Yeah. No, no, I mean, yeah. I can't, I, 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 I did actually, we lost my grandma who I was very close to from dementia mm, and that's, mm. and I, I mean, I can reaffirm everything you said. I mean, that's just the worst thing. And it was a very long and slow yes. decline. So it's yes. like for years, I mean, she couldn't talk for two, three yes. years towards the end. And, you know, it was probably five, six years at least before that, where she was just, you know, forgetting us one by one or, or, you know, and, and yes, yeah. it's so hard because they're physically present. So you have, like you said, you have this expectation of, of that person that you've known and whatever, but they just disappear. It's like they disappear and they're not right. there. It's, it's such well, a, and, a tough thing. And, and that's the, you know, you could take what we were just talking about and flip it inside out. Like yeah. I have to, I have to forget her. Yeah. I have to forget to release her to go on this journey or to, to do the same for your, you know, for your grandmother. And, yeah. you know, my, my mom's mother had old age dementia and passed just before we went on this trip. So it was, you know, multiple in the lineage. Sure. And the same thing, like, how do I, how do I give the grace or spaciousness that, that required to, to not hold her to the identity that I've been carrying of her and what she should be in my life and what, you know, and that's a tough thing to let go of. Um, but that, that was also, I think, overall helpful for me to kind of say, I need to begin to, you know, quote unquote, forget, uh, the roles that she's played so that we can establish new ones, um, and evolving ones, um, which I think is just an important part of life with, with any relationship. There's so many great moments, uh, in the book about the journey and the trip and, you know, special moments that I that people will have to read to read about and find out. But is there is there one moment in the book or not in the book that from that mm-hmm. whole trip and that whole experience that really stands out? That's something mm-hmm. that like that nugget that you that you keep there that you look back on and with like joy or yeah or yeah. There, there's probably there's probably two. Both of them are in the book. Um, one is is in the book in a way that that it states that it, it's a kind of a you know that special moment is when I. Uh, we were at um, Old Faithful uh, in in Yellowstone, and um, I, I had, you know, Old Faithful had just erupted, and there was, you know, hundreds of people, just scores of people around, and it erupted, and or you know, you know, the steam was all going, and then everybody started to kind of dissipate, and I said, hey, mom, I've, you know, I've got to head in and use use the washroom. Do you want to come with me? And I, I took a bit of a risk of like, I'm going to leave her on this bench, and I just. I just picked up from her energy that she wasn't going to wander and it seemed, seemed fine. So I, so I did that. So I went back inside, used the, used the washroom, came back outside and, and everybody had gone, like every single person was gone. And it was just her sitting in her little red sweater on a bench, staring at old faithful and just, I could just see her from behind and she was sitting so erect, like attention, like in school or something. And just still like, something was happening that she was watching and I don't know I I go back to that moment in my head kind of over and over first of all how stunning that was and secondly like she was watching some kind of beauty that everyone else missed I, I felt and and what what does it take you know to do that the second part that I think is is in the book but but I think there's stuff that I haven't written about in in great detail 
um, that I go back to was the moment that we pulled into the campsite that we had created the surprise that we were, I was, I was meeting, we were meeting my, my, uh, my mother's sister. And, and of course it's not terribly hard to surprise a person with Alzheimer's, <laughs> but we, but we did that. And, and, and so I described that, um, that meeting in, in the, in the book, but I, I have a video of that moment and, and I just, I can't, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I watch it. Just the sheer surprise and emotion. And, and specifically, I think what was special to me about that was, was just the, this bang on recognition. And that's, you know, we don't get that anymore with my mom. And so it's such a beautiful moment to go back to of like, oh, and she doesn't, she can't say it. She doesn't say that's my sister or that she doesn't say a name or whatever. She just goes, I know her, you know, and gets out of the car and they embrace. And so I watched that video a fair bit. Um, and so those are, those are two moments that really stand out in my mind. Yeah. Now did, now growing up, did you and your mom do a lot of like hiking and like camping or a lot of, did you visit a lot, of, do a lot of like nature and outdoor <laughs> stuff growing up? No. No. <laughs> no. So, so as a family, we, we were what I would describe as a very um, athletic family, but not outdoorsy. And so my parents were both like tennis players, squash, we were just like a waspy uh, athletic family. They played tennis and squash and we skied and water skied and you know there was a lot it was lots of um, physical activity and we were highly encouraged as young ones to be physical and play sports and team sports and, and all of that. Um, and so a lot of our lives you know centered around that kind of physical activity which was great um, but we weren't outdoorsy in the least and in fact there's a lot of moments on the, and this is where, you know, it kind of goes back to what, what Jeff said in regards to the number of times where my mom says, like, it never occurred to me to ask to do this or, you know, to change. The she loved the outdoors. And, and in fact, with some friends here and there, you know, went on a whitewater camping trip with some girlfriends once. Like, there was a, a few kind of attempts to get a little dirtier, let's say, and get into the wilderness a little bit more. Um, so she would have loved that. And that's one of the reasons why I asked her to do the trip, because I thought, you know, my dad and I, who were really personality wise and travel wise, like two peas in a pod, um, we would normally be the ones that would book a, a trip or traveling together. Um, I thought this is a unique opportunity to do something with my mom that, that she will really, really love and that he would be like, great, see you later. You guys have, have your fun. I don't need to be a part of uh, getting dirty in the wilderness. <laughs> yeah. I think that the, uh, going back to the moment at Old Faithful, mm. um, you know, one of the things that that touches on a couple different nerves, and one, one of them is the fact that, you know, so many people are missing something of beauty that mm. she experienced, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And we talk about being sort of in the moment and living in the moment, and that's really all that she has is living in the moment. And so there's a lesson there, I think, even. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, this is, I think this is actually one of the biggest lessons that we can take from, um, from the Alzheimer's community is just, um, regardless of if a person or if we, you know, remember an experience um, from yesterday or two days ago or, you know, last year, um, a, a couple of different things. One, in the moment, was there joy created? Was there beauty witnessed? Uh, were there good emotions felt? And then that's, that's really important as you're moving from moment to moment to moment. 
The other thing is, you know, from a somatic level and, and to do with our physical health, the more we feel and experience awe and joy and wonder and, and inside of those moments, that has a direct impact on how deep we're breathing, you know, how relaxed our shoulders are, how, you know, all of these different things. So from a long-term health perspective, I want to be present to, to joy and beauty and I want to look for it. If I'm moving through a moment like that and I feel like, okay, I'm rushed and I'm thinking of the next thing and I mean, that has a, a literal impact on my bodies. My stomach might clench, my shoulders might come up. That, that if I'm doing that day after day after day is going to have an impact on my health. And so I, I think it's, it's, it's a twofold lesson. Um, and gosh, I can't even now, you know, the landscape with, with my mom and she's in a, in a care facility in quite late stage Alzheimer's now. And it really is moment to moment. I mean, you have to, how can I connect with this person and have them experience something that feels good? That's exactly, that's it. Does this feel good energetically or physically to this person? And that's it. That's the connection that we're going to form. And that's, I think, really, really important for all of us on our day to day is to tune in and ask, like, does this feel good? If not, maybe I should do less of it. <laughs> um, and if it feels good, maybe I should do more of it. And that's, I don't know, that's a beautiful and very simple, but quite, quite profound and, you know, big lesson. Yeah. Slightly changing the subject. Yeah. And obviously our listeners aren't going to be able to see this because we don't we don't share the video. But I'm looking behind you and you have this window and there's like a forest. <laughs> there's like a forest outside yes. your window and it looks amazing. And I'm just yes. jealous because it's like 90 and bone dry here in Los Angeles right now. And I'm like, oh, I want I want to be in the shade and the, and the beautiful trees. Yeah. Um, are are yeah. you in uh, are you in in Canada or are you in um, I, I'm, I'm in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, okay, we cool. live on yeah. we live on Bainbridge Island just oh, off nice. of okay. uh, just yeah. off of Seattle. And yeah. and, you know, we my husband and I were living in, in San Diego for a number of years. Yeah. And um, and about four and a half years ago, we well, we, we knew that wasn't kind of like the long term place. And as we were looking for where we wanted to move, um, we, we landed on on Bainbridge, you know, a lot of it had to do with my mom, not only to be, you know, mm -hmm. this was before COVID, so we thought we would be visiting a lot more often yeah. um, and wanted to be closer to do that. Um, but secondly, you know, a lot of what I learned on the journey with her was I want to be in an environment that feels nurturing to me. Now, th these trees in this forest isn't going to feel nurturing to everybody. Like there are people who really thrive in the desert and people who really thrive in the exposure of the plains or the mountains, etc. Um, but that was a really distinct, I think for both my husband and I, for different reasons, but both of us felt it was important, you know, in this phase and chapter of our life to be in a physical environment that felt uh, nurturing to us. And this was, this was kind of an automatic yes as soon as we, we pulled up. And it's, you know, I grew up in Vancouver, Canada, and so this mm -hmm. feels, um, you know, geographically and the plants and the flora and the fauna very, very familiar and very much like home. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're not far, you know. That's right. Just, That's right. <laughs> uh, again, like you said, COVID kind of hard to go. I guess now it's opened up a bit, right? That it must have been opened, very hard, yeah, though. It, it has opened up a little bit. Yeah, we, it was probably, I, I've seen her probably about four times, two, three or four times in the last two years. The borders obviously were, yeah. were an issue, um, but also, she, you know, she was in a, in a good, it was good timing and also horrible inside of COVID to be moved into a care facility. Yeah. Um, and the visitation and the lockdowns and the, and the health and safety precautions, all of which I was, you know, pro and glad that the facility was putting into place. 
um, made it really tough uh, to go up and visit at various points. So I haven't seen as much of her as I'd like, but the times that I have have been really, really powerful, really special. Oh, good. Since you have this crazy skiing world record, yeah. how, how did you get in it? When did you first get in? I mean, was, was, that, was that your sport growing up? Was that, or was that, did you pick that up a little later? Yeah, you know, I, all of us, uh, all of us being all of my siblings and I, um, were probably on skis, you know, two and a half, three years old. Uh, we were, we were definitely a skiing family. And even as I look at like all of my nieces and nephews, the same thing, like I get pictures of them and they can barely walk, but they're in, you know, in their skis. So that's a, you know, was a big part of growing up. And then there was just, as I said before, you know, we were really encouraged to be involved in athletics. So, you know, in high school, I was on the basketball team and I was on the, you know, all of these different types of things. Um, the, the main sport actually, you know, through the end of high school and all through university was rugby. I was a rugby player for six years. Um, and so that was uh, fun and caused a lot of bruises. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was not what I thought was going to come out of I your know, mouth. That was, very cool. <laughs> that was like very low on the list of things that I thought you were going to say. Yeah, I, you know, yeah, I'm, yeah. you know. Yeah. I no, love I, the image of I'm you like, as a rugby player. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like, I, was, I was I was I was yeah. a rugby player. I play, I play. I don't know if anybody knows about rugby, but I was a winger. So nope. I you know I was just fast. I just you know yeah. I liked speed, and that's you know it 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 when you look at the especially when you look at Unbound. I mean, really, so much of Unbound was was me trying to be one of the guys and and trying to um, you know prove my worth in the world by the sides of the cojones that I had and the, the the journey that I actually went on and what's in the book is really realizing like oh actually my power is going to be found in in really finding a balance of being you know myself as a woman in the world. Um, but that kind of, you can see the lead up to that. Like, if you look at that, you're like, oh, right. She, she would have been a rugby player. And, you know, the, the, the rugby as well as, as, as skiing, like I've always, uh, been a fan of speed and I, I like, I like to run and I like wind in my face and I, you know, those types of things. So, yeah. My closest to knowing anything or being a rugby player was in Dublin. I, while I was drunk, I got adopted by a group of New Zealand rugby team that was visiting over there. And because I actually physically look like I should be playing right. rugby, they assumed that I right. was tough enough to play rugby, which I'm certainly not. So, but, but it was a lot of fun, you know. It is a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. And so much of it, you know, it's exactly that. So much of it was, you know, the team camaraderie and you've got, you know, that's, that's I don't know. I, I, I am still, you know, quite close with a lot of the people that I played with in university. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was fun. But, woof, geez, that was, that was a lot. So, um. Steph, how does it feel to know that this book is going to be like coming out soon and into the hands of people? Is it like excited, nervous, excited? I'm sure you've been doing a lot of promotion for it right now, so I'm sure you've been talking about yeah. it a lot. Yeah, it's it's a. Uh, um, I've been calling it like just. It, it feels kaleidoscopic. Like I can't. You know, when I when I think about Unbound, which again, as I said before, was my first book. And just kind of like, I, I just could not believe that I had a book. I just was so naive. I knew nothing about the publishing industry. I knew nothing about books and book sales. I just, I was so astonished and in awe and excited and being like, ah, you know, everything just seemed like such a celebration. And, and certainly the second book is, you know, there's, there's a lot to be celebrated in there. Um, but I think there's, there's a bit of, I know... I'm not as naive. I know the industry a little bit more now. And so there's certain things that I, I look at or don't look at that, that it's a little bit more of a worrisome. Like I'm like, oh God, it's, this is happening or this is not happening or this is great or this is not so great. 
There's also, um, there's also just like, you know, a completely different emotional landscape um, and, and ongoing anticipatory and current grief that, that is part of this process. You know, I, I, I've been reflecting on this a lot and I think trying to kind of mentally and emotionally prepare myself for the actual launch day of not being able to phone my mom. You know, that, that feels like just excruciating and awful. And so how am I, what am I doing to, to, to kind of move in that direction and be honoring of that grief? And, and Sveria, I think that's it, is how do I move through what I, what I want to be a celebratory kind of event, including, you know, marketing and sales and promotions at the same time as being really honoring to um, to my family, as well as like the grief, the ongoing grief that, that I'm experiencing. And that is, that's, that's where the kaleidoscopic, like I'll go to like do something promotional and then I'll be like, oh no, like I, I, I need a day to like cry again, you know? So it's, it's a lot of ups and downs. Yeah. Well, it seems like, like whatever catharsis you might get from the actual writing of the book. Now you have trapped yourself in a, like a, not like a never ending, like cycle of having to Right? discuss it and re-experiencing it rather right. than being able to sort of process it and move it on because it's right. like you know yeah yeah it's, I was I was saying to another person it's like not like the glass cage of emotion but it's yeah. like the kaleidoscopic cage of emotion yeah. <laughs> and and I feel lucky that I have I have I do have you know a lot of those tools there has been a lot of grief um, process through the catharsis through through the writing of the book um, so there's a, there's a lot to kind of rely on there, but I, but I have had to be very cognizant of making this, um, adding a lot more space in where I can, you know, so that there is time to utilize those tools and kind of bring myself back to center where I can. Well, and, you know, obviously a lot of outdoorsy people write books, but as someone that kind of came to it later and never expected to be a writer, what advice can you give someone that wants to write a book, you know, about their, well, I guess any experience, but obviously most of the people that listen are outdoors. So let's say outdoorsy people that want to write a book like what did you know what did you not expect and you know what would you that is advice? that is a really good question what is my advice to people who want to write a book about their journeys um my, my advice is is just to you just have to sit down and write i mean there's a lot of people who kind of want to know the answers to the questions that are like later down the road how did you get an agent how did you get a publisher how did you make this decision about the way it would come out in the world how did you decide on the title blah 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 all of those to me are like sister brother sit down and write um those are questions to answer you know much further along and so that, that would be number, probably number one, and, and maybe associated with that, <laughs> I don't know, I'm maybe, maybe I'm starting to like teeter towards like cynical jaded person, but, but my, and, I, and I would mean this in a, in a wholehearted way, is kind of why, t t tell me why. Um, and, and if it's because I think it'll bring me fame or because I think it will, uh, I, I don't know. There's there's a lot of different reasons that I think could be could have our ego involved. Because I think I'll make some money. Because I think you know you know I don't know. There, there could be lots of things there. I think I'd want to really. Ex my advice would be to really really deeply examine that. Um, for me, and I think Severia knows this, is that you know almost anything that I do, including going on the trips, including writing about them, really comes from a, a, a sense of like deep calling. Like I feel something knock on the door and I usually close the door 20 times on it before I say yes to it. Um, and if it's not coming from that place, if it's coming from, I want another book deal, if it's coming from anywhere other than that, 
it's kind of a no for me. Um, now other people have different ways of doing things and, and, and so be it, but those would probably be my two things is, is don't worry so much about the end, end product or how you're going to get there. Just sit down and write. And before you sit down and write, maybe just ask why, you know, do you feel called? Does this feel good? Is this part of your process? Um, yeah, especially, especially when it comes to, to memoir. Um, yeah, it sounds like if you're not compelled to do it, maybe you shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> yes, yes. I think that's a great way of saying it, that, that there's got to be some kind of, you don't even, it's, it's unnameable almost, this, this internal, like, you're going to do this. Um, and that's, you know, that's how most of, most of what I do in my life, that's how it works for me. So, yeah. That's, I, you know, I always say that when people, people would, when I finish the ski trip, most people would be like, okay, what are you doing next? Like, what's on your bucket list? And, you know, my answer, you know, always, uh, it, it really shifted because of the trip. It used to be, you know, 10,000 things that I wanted to do. And, and it shifted to, you know, two things. One is, am I listening for what I'm called to do? Am I listening for what I'm compelled to do? And two, do I have the courage to say yes when I hear them? And that's, that's it. And if that means I travel to Botswana, that's great. If that means I, you know, go cycling with my father, that's great. If that means I write a book, that's great. It's just, am I listening for that? And number two, when I hear it, do I have the courage to say yes? Um, and that takes time. <laughs> I just feel like so many people are going to be able to relate to so much of this book and the journey. And so I think that's something that's really special stuff in this mm. book. Um, and I think people who have loved ones that are going through Alzheimer's and memory loss or dementia, I think this is going to be a really, really special book for a lot of people. Um, and it's beautiful because it's not only honoring the experience that that person's going through, but how it affected you, you and like, and, and what to take out of that, right? Like what lessons can we, how can we turn this horrible situation into something that's not positive, but something that we can grow from and learn from mm -hmm, and like mm -hmm, be positive. Mm -hmm. um, so I just want to thank you for that. Cause I think mm, that's, it's mm. going to bring, um, thank you. it's going to bring something special to a lot of people. And my, my other random question is how did you choose the quotes at the beginning of every chapter? Mm. Mm. Ooh, good one. Oh, that is a good one. That is a good one. Well, Severia, you know, I, I read voraciously. Um, I read a lot and, and, and especially when I'm writing, I'm very, very particular about what I read because it, you're in like an eco chamber. And so if I'm reading all the, you know, beach reads and the gossip reads or whatever, you know, it changes, you know, it changes the tone of the book. And so as I was, as I was in the writing process, I, I started to cultivate a list of of nature writers, of mythologists, of spiritual leaders, of philosophers, of uh, just kind of, you know, when I think about myself and my, my brain and perhaps what I'm capable of bringing through, you know, th there's an edge to that. And I tried to choose writers who sat at the edge and beyond, uh, who I think of as mentors and guides. And, and so, um, you know, inside of that, you, th that, that's essentially where all of those quotes came from. You know, as I was reading Joy Harjo, as I was reading Joseph Campbell, as I was reading Barry Lopez, you know, one of the best nature writers that, that we had, um, as I was reading, you know, Sumant Kidd and Terry Tempest Williams and Annie Dillard and, you know, where are the people who are Robin Wall Kimmerer, where are the people who are kind of blending this, this real lived experience with, you know, humanity and divinity together. And so at the very beginning of the process, I, I knew that, you know, I just know myself, I know I like to kind of collect quotes. And so I had a, I had a running document 
of like ones that really kind of hit me. And I should share the ones that we didn't use because there's, you know, there's 20 or th maybe that's for next book. Uh, there's 20 or 30 in there that, that are still on that list that are really some of my favorite quotes. Yeah. yeah. I just want to second Barry Lopez. I don't meet that many other people that love Barry Lopez and he, mm. he's just such a, an amazing writer if you're an outdoorsy person in, in nature like arctic dreams is just one of the most amazing pieces of work that's ever been done and what he passed away was it two years ago three years ago i think it was you know in, yeah. in the covid landscape it's hard to i know it's right it's hard yeah. to remember but it wasn't long I think ago you're though. right it wasn't yeah. that long ago it wasn't that long ago and yeah and you know it's, it's really interesting i think of him as as you know not only a pioneer and and, and just such an important figure in the nature writing landscape but i, I think part of the reason that he was able to dive into um, and understand and translate nature to in, in, in such an exquisite to, to the degree that he 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 did um, is because of his lived experience he came from a lot of trauma um, and he didn't really that wasn't the focus of his writing there was there was one or two pieces I think there was one in the Atlantic that came out uh, years ago um, about his past uh, experiences with trauma and I I, I think he was probably looking for a way to kind of be of this earth, but also transcendent. I think that's an experience that if we have trauma, like many of us do, you know, you still want to be here tangibly, but you also have a desire to, use, you know, in one direction, it could be disassociated in another direction. It could be transcend. So I think that maybe was part of his gift, but yeah, he was a real talent. Yeah. That's a good question though, Severia, that, that, the quotes, because I've never, I've never had anyone say that. I and I, that is actually part of, you know, on Instagram right now. Probably every third, you know, post that I'm doing are the quotes, are the epigraphs. Um, so if anybody's interested in seeing them, kind of one by one by one by one, um, that'll tell you a lot about the the content of the book as well and the kind of topics that were that I dive into in the book. Yeah. I have this image of you with like a file, like an old fashioned file box <laughs> with like little note cards, like index cards with your quotes, <laughs> like going through and like, like reading something and being, oh, this is a good one. <laughs> oh, I, I mean, it was, this is a good one. And I, I mean, I can't tell you how many books there's, yeah. you know, when I'm in the midst of a writing process, there's a, there's a, uh, a small bookshelf right beside my desk. And, and there's one shelf that I keep on that bookshelf for the books that I'm reading as I'm working on something. And so those are, those are, I'm drawing from those, you know, a lot. I'm flagging pages a lot. So it's not quite a file folder with the, you know, cue cards, but it's a bookshelf version of exactly that. <laughs> See, I was imagining a wall with cards and then all these string things attaching it, you know, kind of like, <laughs> like a, a beautiful like, mind. Yeah, yeah like yeah, a beautiful yeah. mind kind of wall with all the quotes and all that. That's that, actually, that's, where my that, brain that, went. That, that's an accurate image of the inside of my head, actually, okay. is okay. what that is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A sneak peek. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I have to say, Steph, honestly, yeah. when I first started reading the book, I was a little skeptical that mm. it would be like for me, you know, because mm -hmm. I don't know, I don't have a, a personal experience of someone in my life having Alzheimer's and yeah. I'm not a woman and I'm not, yeah. you know, like all the reasons that maybe it wouldn't be about me or for me, yeah. but I yeah. was, I really enjoyed the book. So thank you oh, so much. Thank and I'm you. really glad that I, I read it and... I can't recommend it highly enough. It was good. 
Oh, thank and you. We, we that... have a group text, and it was Jeff was like, "This is beautiful. This is beautiful." Oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that yeah, that that really means a lot. And I, you know, it's I, that maybe is the kind of you know thing to 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 end on is you know I I I have a handful of different notes from people who uh, who I know that are you know I'm so excited for you and I can't wait to celebrate your book and and just FYI I don't think I'm going to be ready for it either because I have somebody who I'm close to with Alzheimer's or I have problems in my relationship with my mother or like you've said Jeff like you know, I don't know if this one's going to be for me. And I, I, there's just a knowing deep inside of me, like this one has, I, I don't know, I think there's, there's something inside of it that doesn't um, keep it as, uh, you have to have some sort of relatability. And, and even if there is deep relatability with, say, the Alzheimer's experience, I, I think it's not a um, excruciating walk through the dark. Um, I, I think there's a lot of, you know, realness, but there's, there's also a real search for uh, what are the gifts inside of this. You know, Brandi Carlyle, the singer, um, she said this quote a while ago, and this is one that stuck with me, um, um, that she said, mysticism is the most practical thing in the world. The only thing about it is that it's found in the smack in the middle of grief. And I think, gosh, that's, that's really it. I mean, wouldn't it benefit all of us to, if we were able to and felt supported to, you know, walk into the center of a hard thing, um, then might we find some transcendence, some, some mysticism, some profundity, some lesson, maybe, maybe even, you know, uh, I really appreciate it, Jason, you've brought us back to moments of levity uh, throughout this interview. And, and I think like laughter is holy, like we've, we gotta be able to laugh to get through anything as excruciating as this. So, you know, I think that's what's found in the middle of that, but it's only when we really are willing to say, maybe there's something in there for me. And that's what I've, what I've just heard you reflect back, Jeff, is you kind of going, I don't know if there's something in there and, and being willing to walk in anyways and find something. So that's, thank you for that. I'm very glad that I did. Yeah. So um, a couple things, the book is coming out for release soon. So Steph, where do you recommend folks buy the book? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, it's available for pre-order. So. That's right. That's right. So the, the book is available for pre-order now. I, I don't know when um, folks are going to be listening to this, but April 26th is the day that it's, it's uh, available and will be shipped if you have pre-ordered it. Um, I always say, you know, what's, what's best and easiest for people uh, for buying their books is always great. I do love supporting local independent bookstores. Um, there is a link on my Instagram bio as well as on my website. There's a local bookshop here that is going to be doing signed copies. So if people are interested in getting a signed copy of the book as a pre-order, um, that's going through Eagle Harbor, which is here on Bainbridge. There's a link for that. Um, but, but really it's, you know, I, I don't like to be demanding about where people buy books. I just say buy books. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm the, I'm the opposite of you because I always feel like if you love a band or you love an, a writer or you, you should, wherever they're going to get the most money possible, because it's, I mean, the way the world is set up for distribution of anything, the, the, the creative person is not at the top of the list of getting money on their product. Yeah, they're at the bottom of the food that's chain. Right. Yeah, that, it takes you right. seconds. So that's I'm just right. going to tell people to our listeners, right. not just that's Steph, right. and, and you should do that for Steph. I'm going to do it through that bookstore you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, um, the, really the best, the actual best thing for, for most authors, uh, and I'll speak mostly to traditionally published authors. I'm not sure what it would be like for, for self-published, but, but for a traditionally published author the absolute best way and 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 I could go into the reasons why but the absolute best way to support them and their art is to pre-order a book um, it has a huge it's a signal to bookstores that there's interest in their work it, it can lead to uh, other book deals it, it's just 
it's a massive, massive help um, in regards to to our, our not only our careers for a single book, but like the longevity of careers. So, so that's a. I'm always a big fan of of suggesting people to pre-order. Um, all of a. This is a technical kind of publishing inside scoop. Is that all of the um, pre-orders that happen? You know, months and months and months in advance of a book calculate into the first week sales. So that's oftentimes why you see like a New York Times bestseller might make it on as a debut. It's like they're on their first week and then they might drop off because the, the next week isn't nearly as close. Now, I, I don't know, that's not really, that's not the main reason why I would I suggest people to pre-order is to get people on lists, um, although it's helpful. Um, it's mostly because it signals to bookstores and publishers, et cetera, that there's you know interest in this person and their voice in the world. Um, and that's a real kind of uh, boon for the longevity of a writer. Cool. Yeah, and we'll great. definitely put links in the show yeah. notes. Um, you know, like bookshop.org is, I think, a good, yeah, and yeah, that does great independent one. bookstores. We'll That's right. Amazon link, right. all the things. So yeah, um, we'll definitely uh, Amazon it. link. Eh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's easy for some people. If they're gonna buy it. A pre order yeah. is a pre order. Yeah, right. Um, There's a few people who use that so. still. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, and then. And then the other thing I wanted to share is that uh, Steph and I are going to be doing a book club through Adventurous Women on June 1st. So we're going to be doing book club with the author um, on June 1st. You can sign up for it at the Adventurous Women website under our virtual workshops. The evening itself is free, but we have a link there for you to make a donation to um, the Alzheimer's charity HFC. So um, Yeah, and that is a recommend- great... That is a great organization, Hilarity for Charity. It's run by Seth Rogen and his wife, Lauren Miller Rogen. Lauren's mother had uh, Alzheimer's and passed. And, and actually, you know, Jason, as we've been moving through this conversation, there's a lot of you that reminds me of Seth. Like there's, the, not that I know him personally, but, but there's a- I'll take, I'll take what yeah. I can get. But it, I mean, I there's, 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 yeah. a, there's a profundity and a levity mixed in one person. Oh, and well, that's, those are some of my favorites. Yeah. Well, thank you, I, I'll take that. Yeah. No, they, they, they do really yeah. great work in the world, yeah. 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 I've nice. smoked much less weed. Yeah, okay. So. <laughs> like no weed actually. So, but yes, other than that I can see that. So, yeah. <laughs> well, stuff. This has been amazing. Uh, thank you so much for taking your time this evening to join us and to share about the book. We're super excited to be sharing it out to all the people's we know. Um, yeah, and we're just really excited and wish you the best of luck with the pre-sales and the Yeah. And the- Absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank yeah. you guys so much. This has been a really amazing conversation. And Jeff and Jason, it's been so nice to, you know, meet both of you and get to interact. And this is I'm I'm, I'm excited to kind of uh, see what you what you three do with the with the podcast. This is really cool. Uh, so, Steph, where can people find you like your social media, your, your web pages? How can people find your book and pre-order it? Yep. The best uh, two two best ways are my website, uh, stephjagger.com. Uh, Jagger is spelled like Mick Jagger, not Jagger, like Jagermeister. Um, so stephjagger.com. And the same thing on Instagram. Um, I'm there, you know, pretty regularly. It's at stephjagger. Uh, fairly simple. And then, you know, as you said, books can be found in, in most of your local retailers and your favorite independent bookstore. And I think you guys are going to have links for that in the show notes. Um, but those sure are by will. far by far the two best places. Great. This has been so much fun. It's been so great talking to you, Steph. It's yeah. been, been yeah. a wonderful experience. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> 
Well, that's going to do it for us. Please make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media on Instagram at almost there underscore AP or the almost there adventure podcast on Facebook. You can find Severia at adventure us women. That's adventure us women, Jeff at the SoCal hiker or me at the Muir project. Our title track almost there is performed by Opus Orange and is provided courtesy of Emoto. For more about this episode and all of our others, make sure to check out the show notes on our website, almostthereadventurepodcast.com. On the next episode, we talk to humorist and runner, Brendan Leonard, a.k.a. Simirad. As always, thanks for listening.